Well, good morning, Calvary. Good to see you guys, as well as those that are joining us online. It's good to have you guys as well. And uh, we are starting a new series. We're jumping in the book of Philippians. And if I haven't met you, I'm one of the pastors. My name is Adam. And we're going to be in Philippians chapter 1. So if you brought your Bible, go ahead and turn with me to chapter 1 of Philippians in the New Testament. And uh, over the next four weeks, Pastor Ray and myself are going to walk through this with you. And our hope is that this is not just a once a week experience where you are jumping into the book of Philippians. We're hoping that you are diving into Philippians this month, that you're able to get up early in the morning or you're able to late at night or on break at work, you're able to jump into this short letter to a church in Philippi uh, that Paul, Apostle Paul wrote to them and that it becomes encouragement for you that the Spirit of God would speak powerfully through this letter to you. Even though it was written a long time ago, it's so relevant for us today. Remember, it's the living and active Word of God. And so out of the, the year, when we plan out, we try to do a couple book studies where we jump in just to a book of the Bible and we're able to walk through it together. You know, this Friday night, just to let you know, I was uh, invited, I spoke at the beginning, just briefly at our, uh, Cascade Christian had their graduation uh, Friday night. It was very cool to see all of them. I graduated Cascade Christian back in 1998. I was feeling a little bit old. It was the 25th graduating class of Cascade Christian, and I was talking to a few other families. Grad parties, graduations are happening all over the place, last week, this week. And uh, I saw a funny meme, no offense to those that are graduating high school, but the meme said this, congratulations for completing the easiest part of your life. <laughs> and all of the people that have graduated, we know that life just it gets harder. So you know what? Enjoy it while it's, while it's easy. So no, it's a huge accomplishment and it's a big deal that you graduate high school, but life picks up and it gets challenging and you have career and marriage and relationships and family and just a lot of stuff thrown at you. But we gather like this as the church to jump into God's word, to do this life together. Whether you're walking through a good season or a difficult one, we hope that you feel like this is home and you can walk with us together. So, the pursuit of joy is how we titled this study on Philippians. There's a huge theme. This entire letter, the four chapters, the theme of joy is, is so evident. The word joy shows up five times, but the words to rejoice occurs over 11 times. So you'll see this, this posture of the author as he's writing this letter. This is what we would call a prison epistle. There are four that the Apostle Paul wrote while he was in prison writing to the church, which is just an incredible thing to think about, that he's advancing the gospel and, and he's in prison and he's writing this letter to the church saying, hey, you guys, fight the good fight. Hang in there. This is how you conduct yourself. This is how you want to, to move forward. And he would always encourage them and write these incredible letters. So Philippians is one of the four that we would call the prison epistles. Now I said the author, the author of this is the apostle Paul. His, uh, he used to be Saul prior to his name being changed to Paul. But as Saul, he was all about killing Christians. He would have been an amazing person to, uh, to, to engage with prior to his name being Paul. If you're a Christian, not amazing though. He was an incredible, very articulate, intelligent, understanding person, but he hated Christians and he persecuted the church. And then Jesus grabbed hold of his heart on the road to Damascus 
radically changed his life and set him on fire for the gospel and he advanced the kingdom. He wrote letters to churches. He planted churches. He was in prison. His life was upside down, but it was all for the glory of God. And he is someone that we would look back to and go, man, if I could be as passionate as him today, watch out world. And I just love how he writes this letter with so much joy and so much passion to encourage the church. You see, back then, the church during this era, as he's writing this, as he planted the church in Philippi, the emperor and the ruler of Rome was Nero. If you know anything about Nero, he was not a good guy. Okay, this young man, he ascended to the throne through a lot of violence, a lot of corruption. He actually took the throne at about age 17. So he's just a punk teenager at 17 years old running Rome, and he did horrific things. I mean, horrific things. If you read any history on, on this, this ruler, Nero. A couple of things, specifically targeting Christians. He, he would take the animal skins and, and lay them over Christians and send them out to battle one another and then have other animals destroy them. It was for entertainment. He would also have these things that in the uh, surrounding the area were these things called pyres, P-Y-R-E, and they were used to cremate bodies. But he had them throughout his palace and around the gardens, and he would arrest Christians, persecute them, and then he would burn them in these pyres to illuminate the gardens of his palace for the parties that he had. I mean, this guy is just messed up, did not love Jesus. Ultimately, at the end of his life, he ended up taking his life. Just a very broken individual. But during this time, the church, as Paul's planting churches and people are rising up to follow Jesus, if you said yes to Jesus during this time, you were basically saying, I am good. I'm willing to give everything up for Jesus. My family, the comforts of this life, the, the, the job that I have, the kids that I'm with right now, my spouse or whatnot, if I say yes to Jesus, I am basically saying I'm all in and I'm willing to lose it all for Jesus, which is an incredible thing to think about. When you think about us today, if you respond to Jesus at church or with a friend or outside of the walls here and you say, I'm following Jesus, we don't really have to risk that much. We don't have to worry for fear of, of losing everything because of the comforts that we have in America in particular. Whereas as I was studying and praying and thinking this week, I, I was thinking about those around the world. There might be some that are watching that are not even local, that are overseas. We have different missionaries and different people that, that have committed their heart and life to go to very dark, dangerous places for Jesus. And when you say yes to Jesus in some of these places, it made me think about praying more often for those that live on the front lines that risk everything for Jesus, advancing the gospel in some of these very difficult, dark places. You know, as the Apostle Paul's writing this, the theme is very evident that it is joyful, which is incredible to think in the darkness that was going on during this time, Listen to the posture of his writing. He is so full of hope, so full of joy in the midst of darkness. And you wonder, how on earth does he have such joy in writing these things? How does he speak with hope? I mean, don't you think that if, uh, if someone was in prison, that we would be the ones writing them saying, hang in there, dude, you can make it. I know you're in chains, but... God loves you. He's with you. Like we would be writing that to him. But no, instead, it's him writing it to the church saying, guys, stay encouraged. 
Fight the good fight. He prays with them or for them with joy, he says. Now, real quickly, before we read verse uh, three, chapter one of Philippians one, verse three, the difference between happiness and joy is very important. You know, we've preached different sermons on the topic of joy, usually around Christmas, Advent, we address, okay, what is joy? But I want you guys to, to start with this definition, this thought. Happiness, let's say it's over here. Happiness is things that come from the external that make us feel good in the moment. We have a, a new job or, or a pay raise or a, a new relationship or a new baby or a new house or we have a birthday celebration. Something outside that happens in circumstances that affects us makes us feel happy. However, we don't always feel happy. Because external circumstances are, are, are not always encouraging us and helping us and making us feel happy. So for striving for happiness, then you're basically striving for good experiences and circumstances forever. And we all know that that's not a reality. Now, joy is dramatically different. Joy is not based on an external happening to us. Joy comes from within. It's actually a fruit of the spirit, the spirit of the living God within us. In another letter that Paul writes to the Galatians, he talks about the fruit of the spirit and joy is a part of the spirit of God that comes from within and flows outward towards circumstances. That's how Paul, when he's full of the spirit of God, he can look at his external circumstances with joy still because it comes from within. It's not based on the circumstances affecting his heart. His joy comes from within. Actually, the word joy in the Greek is pronounced kara, C-H-A-R-A, and it can be defined as this. It's a feeling of inner gladness, delight, or rejoicing. Inner gladness, delight, or rejoicing that then flows outward. So as we read this first portion of Philippians 1, I want you to think of this joy that Paul carries and how we can foster and develop this kind of posture and joy in our own hearts and lives, irregardless of circumstances. Listen to what he says in verse three of Philippians one. Every time I think of you, he's writing to the church, every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Whenever I pray, I make my requests for all of you with what? Joy. For you have been my partners in spreading the good news about Christ from the time you first heard it until now. He goes on, and I am certain, I love his confidence, I am certain that God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it's finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Let's pause there for a moment. I just love how he starts off with thanking them. He's so appreciative. He's so grateful. There was a gal that spoke at this graduation recently, and what really struck me from her speech, her, her, her short testimony, she's an international student, she ended up saying, we need to have this posture of gratefulness. I, I just think that's sometimes a lost art in our American consumer culture, not being grateful for the things, the blessings, the comforts, the stuff. We have to adopt this posture. And Paul starts off almost all of his letters thanking, appreciating, being grateful for the relationships that he has with these people in the church. 
Also, he goes on and he says, I think of you often and I pray for you. He doesn't just pray for them. He prays with joy. You know, we do this thing called the prayer experience. How many of you guys have gone through Rooted? Okay, majority of us have gone through Rooted. There's a group of you that are in it right now. And in a few weeks, you will be commissioned by us about you're the church now. You're a part of what we're doing. And there's this thing called the prayer experience. And it's so funny to see people's faces when we say you're going to do a prayer experience and it's going to last two hours because people are like, I'm out. Okay, thanks. I I can't make it that day. When is it? Whatever day it is, I'm busy. (laughs) Because two hours in in our in our limited view of what prayer is. And this is even for me, it's kind of radically changed the way I think of prayer. We might jokingly say, you know what? I, I don't know if I can do this for two hours. I can only ask ask God for so much stuff for so much time. I can't do it for two hours. Because that's really a lot of our prayer life is like, Lord, give me help. I need, I want, and then bless me, right? A lot of times our prayer life can just be us. Give me, I want. So the idea of connecting with God and praying for two hours just seems like impossible. But I would say that if not everyone that goes through that time, we look at God's word, we look through the Lord's prayer and we shift our hearts, we, we do it in joy and we, we find freedom, we pray for one another, and we, we care for one another, we, we bear one another's burdens and you walk away after two hours, you go, that was it? I can do this. This is what it means to be in the presence of God. This is what it means to engage with him. And I think Paul understood prayer, not in a I want, I need, but he understood at the very depth of who he is that With joy and in joy, I pray for you. What if we became the church that in our prayer life, we prayed with joy for one another? We prayed for our family and our friends and the persecuted church and other churches and other leaders and other people with joy. And that was our posture. Paul obviously got it and did it consistently. Yeah, he wasn't perfect. None of us are perfect. But he had something deep within him that drove this desire to pray with joy in the midst of hard circumstances. Paul also believed, and I love this assurance he had, that what God starts, he will see through. He was so confident that God began a good work, he's faithful to complete it. I think I struggle with that sometimes. I think I sometimes take too much of the center spot of trying to sustain everything. Follow me for a moment. Do you ever feel like, okay, I believe God started it. He did everything for me. But now it's my responsibility to carry it, to shoulder it, to live this life for Christ. And it's burdensome and it's difficult and it's hard. Why is it that we believe that God started it, then we're the ones to sustain it, and then he's hopefully going to come back and finish it? I think a lot of us fall into that thinking rather than really believing what Paul's saying here. God started it. He's sustaining it. He will finish it. So the moment you feel overwhelmed, the moment you feel anxious, the moment you feel like I can't or you're stricken with fear or you're feeling like you're pressed down and I can't sustain this, that's the moment God wants you to say, I can't do this. And you get back to God, you have to do this for me or through me. I give it back to you. Why did I take it? When you begin it and you're going to sustain it, why do I keep taking it? I think it's part of our human nature, unfortunately, of taking and holding on to things. 
I think also we insert our human nature in this process. This whole process of us trying to fulfill it on our own is very similar to the way we live our lives. I was thinking about kind of in a funny sense how we as people, we struggle. We're maybe great at starting things, but we're terrible at finishing them. Anyone ever struggle with starting something and you just don't finish well? I think most of us would say, yep, I have 97 projects at home and there's a lot of them that are 10% done, (laughs) right? And you look at all the projects and you get overwhelmed by it and you just, you haven't finished one. I mean, when's the last time you started something, you finished it well and you're like, job done. This feels so good. I did it. But most of the time we look at these things and go, I just, I didn't finish it. I started well, but that I couldn't finish. My wife gets so annoyed with me because the things that I can't finish are movies. (laughs) We will start a movie at like nine o'clock and by 10.30, I'm like totally conked out of sleep. And then she'll say, hey, we got to finish the movie. And I'm like, I'm going to bed. She's like, you're going to bed? How? We have to finish the movie. How many guys have to finish the end of the movie before you go to bed? A lot of you. I know. How many of you guys are like me? You could care less. Okay, awesome. If, it, if it's halfway through, you're like, you know what? I'll just Google it and find out the ending, right? Some of you guys are like, I'm staying to the very end of the credits because there might be a bonus something. I'm like, I just Googled it. This is what happens. Let's bounce, right? There's this this feeling of I don't want to finish all the way through or I can't. And I think what happens is because that's our nature as humans and in our brokenness, when we read things like this that Paul says, we insert ourselves and say, I'm not going to finish well. I can't sustain this. I can't do this. And I want to remind you through these words of this, this is not just for the early church. This is for us and you today. I am certain, Paul says, that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. Some of you guys need to give back the work that you've been trying to sustain back to him and trust him to sustain and ultimately finish it in and through you. We go on, and I want to point your attention to verse 20. The Apostle Paul's posture, I'm going to say posture a thousand times because I love that word now. It's the posture of his heart the posture of his, his writing is joy-filled. It is, it is so rich with this perspective of hope and confidence in who God is in the midst of horrible circumstances. Here's the thing about being in chains, particularly the Apostle Paul in this circumstance. I told you there are four prison epistles where he's writing from prison. This one, historians would say when he was in prison, he was actually under house arrest. Okay, now house arrest back then did not mean you had an ankle bracelet and you lived on the beaches of Malibu and you lived on a nice house in front of the water and you can kind of do whatever you want. That's not what house arrest looks like. House arrest back then was at a home that was actually guarded, but you were actually chained to a Roman soldier. So you actually are with someone there the entire time. And it's amazing, because think about this. This is the Apostle Paul. He's writing this, chained to a Roman soldier, awaiting his trial before this horrible man, Nero. And he's writing this hope-filled, joy-filled letter to the people in Philippi. 
I guarantee the Apostle Paul, when he was chained to this Roman soldier, he's probably like, we're stuck together. Do you know Jesus? <laughs> I mean, we're here. God obviously put me here. He chained us together. So do you know Jesus? Here's my story. I used to persecute. I mean, just amazing opportunity. And Paul probably never wasted a moment. Something to think about there for us. Never wasting a moment. Philippians chapter one, verse 20 says this. Paul goes, for I fully expect and hope that I will never be ashamed, but that I will continue to be bold for Christ as I have been in the past. And I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ, whether I live or die. For to me, living means living for Christ and dying is even better. What? He goes on, he says, but if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. So I really don't know which is better. I'm torn between two desires. I long to go to be with Christ, which would be far better for me. But for your sakes, it is better that I continue to live. See, he's, he's in this battle because he realizes the hope of eternity and no pain and, and freedom and what he's, presence of the living God. He longs for that. We long for that. In our short six weeks of from here to eternity, there's something within us that says, I look forward to eternity in the presence of God. It's far better than what we're experiencing here. So Paul longs for that, but he also is torn because he says, but if I'm here, I can produce so much fruit for the kingdom of God. I can equip you guys. I can care for people. I'm on mission. I'm chained to a Roman soldier for a greater purpose. I haven't been taken home yet, so I'm going to witness to this guy. I mean, there's just this mindset of if I'm here on this earth, it's to live for Jesus. If he takes me home, I'm in the presence of God. He goes on in verse 25. Knowing this, I am convinced that I will remain alive so that I can continue to help all of you grow and experience the joy of your faith. And when I come to you again, such confidence. He's like, I, I'm coming to you again. I'm not going to be here forever. I'm not going to die. When I come to you again, you will have more reason to take pride in Christ Jesus because of what he is doing through me. You know, when I've read this numerous times, even preparing for this weekend, the thing that keeps jumping out at me is passion. Paul has such passion and confidence. You, you ever been around somebody that's so on fire for Jesus that you go, I, I want whatever you have. Whatever you're doing, it's working. I want it to rub off on me. You have such a confidence and, and, and assurance and faith. What is it? What is it that, that develops something like that in somebody? You know, the sad thing of this is, is when we start thinking about the American church, the majority of Christians in America, I think we have settled for a comfortable Christian life. I think most of us would say, well, no, I, that's not me. That's those other people. So let's just talk about people outside of Calvary. Okay. So those people outside of Calvary, not us, of course, may have settled for a comfortable Christianity, a Christianity that doesn't really ask that much of them. There's not much risk involved. You pretty much look just like an act, walk, talk, consume, entertain the same way that the world does. However, 
you're saved. You've believed in Jesus and said, I'm in. I believe in your work, but I'm going to continue to do everything the way that I want to do it. You know, we live in a culture that is very comfort driven. If the temperature's not right, we're going we're gonna to get it just right. If the seat's not comfortable, we're not going back to that theater. If we're driving a certain car and it's got different things, like, yeah, you know, I got this new car, but it doesn't have this feature, we want to change it. We want comfort because we live in a culture that thrives on comfort. And I think that hinders us in significant ways, ways that we probably don't even realize. I think about some people in the persecuted church or the original audience here that gave up everything, that when they said yes to Jesus, it was not welcome to this comfortable Christian life. It was, you're going to lose everything. And there was something about that posture of, I'm all in. I am on fire for the Lord. You had drew me to the passage that's found in Revelation. And this is where it kind of gets, maybe I'm stepping on some toes, but I'd say this is the Spirit of God speaking to me and to you this weekend. There's a passage in Revelation where it says there's this church in Laodicea that basically says there's a bunch of lukewarm Christians. They're not on fire. They're not anti-Jesus. They're not cold. They're not on fire. They're just kind of lukewarm. And it says that God is not pleased with the lukewarm Christian. It says it actually, some translations say it makes him want to vomit. He would rather have us on fire or he would ha- rather have us completely cold against him because there's actually more hope for someone that is like a Saul that he can convert and change and he could radically change his life and get him on fire than there is for the lukewarm. I remember thinking about this personally and I came up with just some thoughts about what a comfortable Christian may look like you might disagree you might not think that this is what a comfortable Christian you might think no this is an on fire Christian but I want you to be challenged a little bit and I want to maybe make you uncomfortable a little bit because I think a comfortable American Christian looks like this they come to church once maybe twice a month if it's convenient If they don't have things going on already in commitments and family and sports and kids and and other hobbies and vacation or whatever, they will make sure they make their time once, maybe twice, if they can. They don't really give to the church. They're not financially thinking of how can I partner with the local church. They don't think of their finances in the lens of this is actually God's money and I'm here to steward it. They may give on a whim, they may give to a cause, but there's no consistency and there really is no thought and planning of saying, God, how can I be generous with what you've given me? So they don't don't give. They don't serve. They serve maybe if it's convenient or if there's a big call, all right, I'll give thy one or two times out of the year to serve if it's convenient. But they don't have a posture of contributing to the church. They're still in consumer land. It's a sad place for the American church is that you've probably heard this is the consumer driven mindset. It's coming to church and treating it like a buffet. I'll take a little bit of this, a little bit of this. Oh, I love this. I'm going to take double of this. You know, I'm going to steer clear of that because that actually might give me indigestion. And I'm going to move over here 
and I'm going to grab a little bit of this, and this feels good, and okay, I got, I got what I need, and I feel good, and I'm leaving. Hey, see you guys next week. And unfortunately, that's a lot of people that go to church in America. It's comfortable. It doesn't ask much of them. Pick and choose. They're not really growing in their faith, their prayer life. Their passion for Jesus is really not evident. If you ask the coworkers and the people they work with, hey, did you know that so-and-so goes to church or they're a believer, or they, they love Jesus? They might get some responses like, really? Wow, I didn't know you go to church. Oh, I, I, didn't, I didn't know you were a follower of Jesus. I, I didn't know it. So you're a secret agent. Awesome. <laughs> you're undercover, right? See, here's the thing. I think that list of comfortable Christians, unfortunately, a lot of us, even here today and watching online, can fall into the comfortable Christian. It's so easy to do. We can slip into it and just say, this is just what it is. This is, this is how I follow Jesus. But then you move into maybe this next area, which might be the committed Christian, which moves us into a place where we're showing up more and we think of this gathering with more intentionality. There's power in gathering like this. I mean, we could, we could all be at home and we could all watch it online and be disconnected that way. Now there's people watching online, that's okay, but we know that the people watching online, it's because they can't get here in person, right? We want you guys to gather and do life face to face and to connect and to grow and to be consistent and to show up and to worship together and to grow together. The last thing I want to hear from somebody is, hey, I haven't been to church in a while. Why? Well, because I've been going through a difficult season and so I kind of pulled away, but now I'm doing better, so I'm, I'm back. What? That's the opposite. When you start struggling, you lean in more to community. You don't go be a stranger and navigate it on your own. When you start struggling, which will happen, you lean into community even more. You show up two, three, four, five times. Some of you have gone through recovery. I remember early on in my recovery process, I went four or five times throughout the week to just be engaged in the right community, to stay in it because I needed it. I didn't pull away. I wanted to. I think that's for us as we're growing and as we're getting out of that comfortable Christian, you got to lean into community. So you're consistent. You're giving faithfully and financially and partnering with the church. You're serving in an area of ministry. You're growing in your faith and prayer life and love and passion for Jesus. But then you move even further to what I would say the commissioned Christian looks like. The commissioned Christian is what we're about to do to all you rooted grads in a couple weeks. We're about to say, in Jesus' name, you are the church. And it's no longer like, hey, I better call the church to see how we can meet this need. No, you are the hands and feet of Jesus in your relationships and in your family, in your community, in your schools, in your workplace. God has commissioned you. And what that person looks like, they're consistent at church as a contributor not a consumer. They think of gathering at 11 o'clock or nine or whatever service time you come, you think, how can I contribute today? That's a, that's a mindset shift because many of us come to church thinking, what can I get? But a commissioned Christian shows up to say, what can I give? Who can I connect with? Who can I pray for? How can I contribute to the body of Christ this weekend? They give faithfully above and beyond. 
and steward God's money with excellence. They serve in ministry. They don't just serve, they also equip others to do ministry. They don't just serve the people in front of them, they look at how can they replicate themselves in others. How can we have this thing go exponential because I'm replacing myself in other people? They also are passionate about sharing their faith and their story with other people. They're like the Apostle Paul in whatever setting, I guarantee he shared his story. He shared his faith, whether he was in chains, whether he's planning a church, whether he's walking with someone he didn't know, whether he was out and about, he was about sharing his faith in every circumstance because he took those moments with intentionality. If God has me here and I'm not in heaven, I'm living for Christ. I'm going to make the most of every opportunity. And they're passionately growing in their faith, prayer life, and love for Jesus. You know, I think for each one of us, what we have to close with is this thought. The thought is this, where are you in the scale or spectrum of this comfortable Christian to a commissioned Christian? And be honest with yourself. It might be easy to say, oh, well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm committed. I'm, I'm all in. I'm on fire. I'm not lukewarm. But if you get honest about some of these things and you start looking at your investment and your mindset and your priorities and your things throughout the week, you might realize, you know what? I've kind of slipped into, I'm, I'm living more of the comfortable Christian walk. There's no shame to be heaped on you for that. This is God's gentle, gracious reminder to get out of the comfort, the comfortable Christian life, to be committed and commissioned because we have a mission to accomplish. If you take the next breath and the next one and you're still breathing by the end of this service, God has a mission, a purpose, a plan, an intention for you still on this earth as his son or as his daughter. Not just to be comfortable, not just to entertain yourself, but to think radically different about your days and your family and your friends and the things that you have and the way that you live your life, the way you conduct yourself. And if you don't wake up tomorrow and you wake up in heaven, mission complete. But if you wake up tomorrow, you go, okay, I'm heading to work. Those people need Jesus. I'm caring for my family. How can I replicate myself and my son or my daughter? How can I love my spouse well? How can I pursue right relationships? How can I find freedom from this brokenness and this addiction? I'm going to go all in because I'm on fire for you, Jesus. I don't want to be lukewarm. I definitely don't want to be cold. So here's the, the closing thought. What is it that you have to be uncomfortable? What, what needs to be in your life where you need to get a little uncomfortable for Jesus? Is it in your giving and your finances? You might go, giving 10% to the church, so uncomfortable. We can't do that. God has called us to be faithful stewards of what he has given us. Maybe for you, it's taking that step of faith and saying, we're going to give. Maybe it's serving. You've been consuming for too long and you've got to get out of your comfort zone. I've got to engage with young people. I've got to serve in youth or kids or I've got to serve in men's or women's or some ministry here I, I don't know well, there's about 700 to 1,000 young people they're going to be out on the field 
this evening that could probably use a handful more Jesus followers that are on fire to say, let me stoke that flame in you at age 12, at age 15, at age 10. Set up this next generation of Jesus followers with our intention, with our passion, with our fire to serve. What is it for you? I could give a bunch of suggestions, but as we close with this bridge and chorus, I want us to put Jesus back in the center. I want us to get a little uncomfortable for Jesus. And I want him to reveal to you what is it for you that you got to step out in faith and change by his spirit, by his power, not you, but by his spirit and power that you would step out of your comfort zone and do something different, radical for his name's sake. Amen? Let's bow our heads. Jesus, I thank you for each person that's here today, every individual, every family. God, I know that this letter to the church in Philippi was probably a breath of fresh air for them. Having to navigate such difficulty in the circumstances they were experiencing, wow, I can't imagine. And yet Paul wrote this with such joy and passion that I guarantee they read this and they said, we can keep fighting the good fight. We can do this. It's all going to be worth it. Jesus is with us. God is sustaining us. He began a good work and he's faithful to finish it. Let's live for him today, every moment. I pray that over us today, that as we leave today, Lord, we get a little uncomfortable for you. We make some sacrifices for your namesake and your kingdom. That we don't fall prey to the comfortable Christian rhythm that's so easy to fall into, especially here in America. We love you, Lord. We worship you.